Welcome to Sensational, the special educational needs podcast. Our podcast is all about celebrating neurodiversity, strengthening our children's superpowers and empowering parents, carers and professionals with knowledge, advice and support. So I hope you find today's episode not only useful but enjoyable as well. So as a parent myself, I wonder and worry about my children's future. But for parents and carers of children and young people with additional needs, they have that extra challenge to worry about. And while it's true that autism is not something a person can simply grow out of, there are many ways in which parents can help their child learn, grow and thrive in life. I'm joined today by Chris Bonello, an autistic advocate, author and former teacher and multi-award winning writer behind AutisticNotWeird.com. And today Chris is going to give us his top tips for building up autistic children. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. To begin with, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself and your work? Sure, and uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, yep, uh, my name's Chris, for anyone who didn't catch that part. I'm, a, uh, I'm an autistic advocate, former teacher, used to be a primary school teacher, and up until very recently I was a teacher in a school for autistic students. I'm also a, a keynote speaker and blogger and novelist and consultant and a bunch of other things, but uh, most of my work these days... In fact, basically all of my work is about autism advocacy and to trying to build up autistic people. Brilliant. Very busy man. <laughs> so, yeah, we're so pleased that you've got time to join us today. Um, okay, let's get straight to the point of this podcast. And can you start by telling us what your five top tips would be? Yep, sure. The um, uh, short answer is, number one, the future is not set. Number two... We need our own methods in order to succeed. Number three, normality doesn't exist. Number four, other people don't say what they mean. And number five, responsibility builds people. Okay, brilliant. So um, so let's delve deeper into each point that you've made there. Um, let's talk in more detail about the first point that you made about the future not being set. Um, as I mentioned, it can be worrying to parents and carers of children with autism to think about the future of their child. What advice would you give to parents listening today? Well, what I mean by the future is not set is that uh, when I was about four years old, I was first assessed for autism. I didn't get the diagnosis because it was the 1980s, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I read the uh, the reports of what was actually written down about me when I was approaching 30, and it, it, it was quite hurtful, really. It was a damning report into my development delay. And I had to keep reminding myself that uh, this boy with the expressive language skills of a two-year-old and, uh, and so on actually one day became a primary school teacher. And these days... People are reading the exact same words about their four-year-olds, except with the word autism attached. And the uh, the very first thing anyone learns about autism is that it's supposed to be a bad, bad thing. And I'd, I'd like to say, uh, say that the doom and gloom associated uh, with autism is not necessarily true. Equally, I'm not going to lie and say, oh, well, the, the future is absolutely guaranteed to be 100% perfect if you're autistic, because, well... No, it's, it's not like that. But there is no need to enter a self-fulfilling prophecy about, oh, well, my child is struggling now, therefore 
their whole life will be defined by struggles. Mm-hmm. Their path uh, to success and their rate of progress, of, of course, may differ from uh, other people. I mean, that's that's what they talk about when they uh, use the phrase "spiky profile." It, it means that uh, that some strengths will develop later than others, and other skills will develop slower, or in fact, faster yeah. than, uh, than others. And yeah, when when I say I've I had a development delay in terms of well speech and essentially social learning difficulties, mm-hmm. I still developed. It was just delayed. That's all. So yeah, autistic people can absolutely succeed. Just don't don't have the expectation that success is going to look like or be at the same rate as non-autistic people. Yeah. So so did you not find out that you were autistic until you were thirty, or was it? Earlier than that, I, I was twenty four when I found out. 24. I think I've always known I was weird. I always knew I was the weird <laughs> kid. I mean, society made that well and truly clear. And uh, yeah, the, uh, the first time I was actually told, "Chris, it's because you're autistic," was yeah, when I was twenty four, and that, that right, answered okay. a lot of questions. That was massively helpful for me to find out. Yeah, a bit, bit of a relief, really, I suppose. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. in fact, there's all conversation to be had there about not keeping autism as secrets from your child as if it's this deep dark family secrets that uh will damage them if they f- uh, find out because if mm-hmm. if it's treated like something that needs to be not talked about then people will well the autistic young person mm-hmm. when eventually they do find out uh the only thing worse than that is that they never find out and then they spend their whole lives wondering why they're uh, ineffective and inept and uh, different mm-hmm. in a bad way to a, because obviously autumn is defined by as weaknesses when, when it comes to social judgments so yeah well, i don't want to go into too much depth about it because I'm, I'm going off on a huge tangent but it is wor- <laughs> uh, worth mentioning uh the potential damage that can be done if you deliberately don't talk to your child about them uh, them being autistic in case they feel like there's some sort of shame there because yeah. they'll probably the- detect the shame that you are afraid that they'll feel and then react as if, wait, hang on, that's how I'm supposed to be feeling then, surely. Mm. And there isn't any shame. And there's so many positive traits to autism, so, which we'll, we'll look at a bit later on. But, um, but yeah, I want to move on to your second tip. So... Um, on methods to succeed. So obviously you're now a very successful speaker and author, but can you tell us how you got to this point and have there been times that you've struggled? Yeah, it is curious. I realised a couple of years ago that the, uh, I know sense ago sound dramatic, like the only things I've ever succeeded at. Like, uh, okay, mm-hmm. I have succeeded at a fair number of things, but the, the only things that I have succeeded at, the one thing that they all have in common is that I succeeded in a very atypical way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, when publishing the Underdog si- uh, series, there's a uh, there's a a set formula that wannabe authors need to go through in order to get published. Tried that route, didn't work, and then end, ended up going a completely different uh, route before uh, Unbound discovered me, and actually, actually it was uh, one of their editors who discovered me, and then uh, put me in touch with the CEO. So I, I succeeded, but not in the standard way and so right. also that, that's me as a, as a teacher as well I really try to uh, succeed as a primary school uh, school teacher and so mm-hmm. but I, I'm not suggesting it failed I'm suggesting it was so difficult that I realized pretty early that I uh, 
I wouldn't be able to do this all the way up, up until retirement. So it's better to uh, switch careers while I've still got the energy for it. But uh, then I re-entered teaching in specialist education and we are so, wait, hold on. This is exactly where I was basically supposed to be all uh, all along. Really, I should have spent mm-hmm. my, uh, my whole career in in awesome specific education. And yeah, I, I can think of a, a number of other things that I succeeded at, but not by following the assumed correct methods. Um, in an early, earlier podcast that we recorded, uh, we talked about success in exams. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I was very quick to, uh, to point out was that there were loads of articles out there on how to help yourself study for exams. And they're usually written for neurotypicals by neurotypicals, but yes. they're often uh, displayed as these correct methods, which will surely just work with everyone because we're all human, aren't we? Well, <laughs> yes, we are. I'll give you that. But uh, no, you've got to find the methods that uh, work for you. As I often told the students when I was te- uh, teaching them maths, there are about half a dozen different ways of you getting the answer to this question right. And within reason, I don't care which method you use. Your brain, your methods, and frankly, your brain is the only brain your method needs to make sense to. Yeah, sure. Unless, of course, you're passing the exam, in which case you have to demonstrate to the person marking the exams that you know what you do. But in, in terms of solving real, in quotes, real life, because exams are real life, of course, but mm-hmm. solving real life problems, then yes, you do and you should have full reign to approach things using your own methods in ways that make sense to your brain, not the ways that everyone else is trying to tell you should make sense to your brain and why on earth don't they make sense to your brain? That means you're different and therefore this is a negative and so on. Yeah, yeah. But it it just goes to show that like obviously you've tried different different things and now you've got to that point where you're really enjoying what you do and you found your specialist in life really haven't you where you speak about autism and you help people with autism and you know I have certainly found a place in life where I can play to my strengths yeah another thing (laughs) I say when I talk about some autism and self-perception is uh, using my own real life example when I was in my 20s, I very much defined myself by my weaknesses. What, uh, what I meant was, okay, so I'm terrible at this. I'm awful at that. I'm really bad at that. I, I'm, I'm good at this, but that doesn't matter because the important thing is I'm bad at that, that and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. I've now become the person in my 30s who thinks, okay, well, I'm good at this. I'm really good at that. I mean, even The Guardian says I'm good at writing novels, but uh, uh, I, I'm still really awful at that but that doesn't matter because the important thing is i'm good at this and so on yeah. and so basically defining myself by my strengths rather than by my weaknesses now here's the kicker i have exactly the same profile of strengths and weaknesses now as i did in my 20s mm-hmm. with two exceptions really first off i'm a lot better at reading comfort zones now because of the work i've done with uh, with vulnerable people and just like uh, life experience in general and also i can solve a rubik's cube these days and i couldn't do that <laughs> in my 20s <laughs> it's right, so, I, I average around 19 seconds on a regular three by wow. three by three. But other than that, my strengths are exactly the same and my weaknesses are exactly the same. I mm-hmm. obviously have built upon my strengths and have tried to remediate uh, uh, various weaknesses. But really, the difference is self perception. The yeah. fact that when I was in a place in the world where I was trying to find my place in the world, but 
I was very aware that I wasn't succeeding, and therefore it must be because of my weaknesses, and therefore the weaknesses are the most uh, the most influential part of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was depressing. But now I have found that place in the world where I can play to my strengths, and I get to define myself by th- uh, those strengths. Uh, I'd like to finish at th- uh, this point by uh, uh, some people listening may know the autistic advocate professor Stephen Shaw, and. We were speaking together at a conference in India, and one of the sentences he said in his talk has stuck with me ever since. Uh, He said, no autistic child has ever made a career out of remediated weaknesses. Now, the reason he said that was because we, we often try to force children with learning difficulties, autistic children, and so on and so on, to... uh, just get better at English and maths and so, or, all these other things they're good at. Yeah, they, those are kind of um, side quests. The important mm-hmm. thing is let's work on the things that, that they're not very good at. And I have taught English and maths to people who have really, really struggled with English and maths, but I've never approached it as something that needs to be the defining part of their personality or, or anything. Mm-hmm. I want to teach them enough maths so they don't get ripped off and enough English so they can read and write in, in, important letters and, uh, and and things like that. Yeah. But when it comes to playing to their strengths, you've got to actually recognise and focus on their strengths rather than spending the whole of their education just trying to uh, to remediate their weaknesses. Because as Professor Shaw says, no one's ever built a career out of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's great advice. So let's move on to your third point that you made. Um, normality doesn't exist. Can you explain to everyone listening why it's so important to be your own autistic, authentic, autistic self and how children should celebrate their superpowers? Okay, well... I very often quote Judy Garland when she said, it's better to be a first-rate version of yourself than a second-rate version of someone else. That's another quote that's uh, stuck with me for a long time. And authenticity is a very undervalued, under-recognised autistic strength. I find rather curiously that a lot of people who have met for the first time are very quick to trust me. And I think one of the reasons for that is because right from the start, they know what kind of person I am. They know what they're dealing with. It's, it's like they don't have to be on their guard around me. Right. Like that, They just seem to just know what kind of person I am, which is something quite wonderful, really. And it's, mm-hmm. it's something that is much different to, again, being in my 20s, when I was exactly the same caring, kind, well-meaning type of person. But other people took a while to warm to me, and it was probably because I was waiting for permission to be authentic. Ironically, if if I'd just been my regular autistic self back then, I probably wouldn't have had as many social struggles as I did. And yeah, fair enough, I'd have had a lot more people judging me because people love to judge autistic people. But... That's going to happen anyway. If people are going to choose to be judgmental regardless of what kind of uh, person you are, then you might as well be your actual self. It's like when we we put autistic children in social skills classes because they're being bullied for being autistic. Well, in my opinion, 
why aren't you putting the bullies in social <laughs> social skills classes yeah. to make them learn how to not bully people? But even if you successfully teach an autistic child to successfully mask their autism, is the bullying magically going to stop? Or will the bullies just find something else to bully them about because they're, they're bullies and they like bullying? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if, if it's a case of damned if you, if you do, damned if you don't, then you might as well just be your real self anyway. I think the... Um, the best way of talking about autism, whether to autistic children or like advocating in general, is being open and honest about the struggles, but showcasing the strengths and talking about it in a way that, A, doesn't paint a picture to the neurotypical population of, oh, well, uh, well, if they're just loaded with superpowers, then we don't need to accommodate them or anything. And also striking a balance between that and talk about the struggles but not in a way that makes the autistic person listening feel lesser so honestly it's a very tricky balance yeah but it is a balance yes um so your next tip um you made on other people don't say what they mean can you just expand on this point and give some examples um, if you wanted me to give all the examples in my head, we'd be here all day. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the, the taking th- the taking things literally thing is real and often is hilarious. Right. And uh, I was uh, talking to a group of people about, about this exact topic uh, just last night. And uh, one of the things uh, they mentioned is that when we talk about other people not saying what they mean, we talk a lot about hints and how they don't work with autistic people, generally speaking. But... Uh, people try to use hints with us because, well, if they work for 98% of the population, why would they not work for the other 2% of the population? So that, uh, so there's that. And also that uh, there's the, hello, how are you? To which the correct response is, I'm fine, thanks, how are you? Rather than, uh, uh, actually, I'm a, a little bit miserable because this, that and the other. You're not supposed to give an honest answer to, uh, to that. But it's not just about hints and it's not just about just general insincerity sometimes people not saying what they mean involves idioms that we think are literal but they're actually not the example used most commonly is i changed my mind we say that as if we literally mean it but we do not changing mind is really a disgusting thing that, that requires brain transplants and all that. oh you've never caught the sun and uh, don't say, oh, I'm all ears, because no, you're not. And also, I absolutely despise the phrase, keep your eyes peeled. Oh, that's it's just horrifying. To <laughs> um, when my stepdaughter was eight years old, uh, it was late in the evening, so her mum asked her, so, Eliza, um, do you want to go to bed? And she went, no. Okay, do you want to stay up for a while? No. Okay, um, what would you like to do? I want to stay down for a while because her bedroom was upstairs. These things that never even cross our minds, that uh, we think are literal when we say them, but they're really not. Also, if I may finish this with a funny story. Yeah, of course. The best answer I've ever given to any test question was, uh, okay, so it was a maths question, and I later found out that they wanted a a mathematical answer rather than the correct one. But uh, this is something that a teacher in year 11 taught me about how to pass GCSEs. Don't put down the correct answers. Put down the expected answers. Mm-hmm. And that's stayed with me ever since. And I've unfortunately uh, had to teach my students that, uh, that as well. But anyway, so 
the question was this. So I was 11 years old. I was in year six. And the question was, a frog is 10 metres away from a pond. On the first day, it jumps five metres towards the pond. So obviously halfway. Oh. The second day, it jumps two and a half metres to the pond. So again, halfway. The next day, it jumps one and a quarter metres. And every subsequent day, it jumps exactly halfway to the pond. Will the frog ever reach the pond and give reasons for your answer? So, Camilla, what's your answer? Oh, gosh. I'm already <laughs> confused. <laughs> well, it's surely... It's 10 metres away from, uh, from the pond. It jumps halfway to the pond every single day. Does every it ever reach day. The... Well, it must reach the pond eventually. <laughs> Is that correct? <laughs> I'm afraid it's not. Oh, God. So, I, I got... So the question was in two parts. First off, does the frog ever reach the pond? And secondly, give reasons for your answer. I got the first bit right. I said that, no, the frog will never reach the pond. The mathematical reason for it is that no matter how small the distance is, going halfway to somewhere is never equal to going the full distance. Even if you're talking about subatomic particles, there'll always be the other half left. So that's why the frog never reaches the pond, because if you're only going halfway... There will mm-hmm. always be the other half, no matter how small that half is. Anyway, so like I said, I got the first part of the, uh, the answer right. I said the frog will never reach the pond. When they said give reasons for your answer, I said that the frog will never reach the pond because frogs are amphibians, and if they go for three days without water, their skin will dry up and they will die. Oh. <laughs> Which was, I would argue, and even uh, speaking <laughs> of someone with a mathematics degree, what I wrote there at the age of 11 was even more correct than the so-called mathematically correct answer, which gives you a literal trillion-day-old frog jumping literally subatomic particles to, uh, towards this pond. But I was told that I'd got the answer wrong. But you also knew the answer, the correct answer, from a mathematical point of view as well, didn't you? Because you knew that it wasn't you, it, it just wasn't correct. Yeah, you just... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So, um, so yeah, let's um, let's move on to the next point. Um, responsibility builds people. So, we do want to teach our children to be responsible and independent. What advice would you give to parents to help build this? I would immediately say, uh, give your autistic. Uh, I say, I say this to teachers as well about about their students, but uh, find something totally non-academic that your autistic young ones can take responsibility for. Now, you may be wondering why I say academic. It's because, well, children spend five days a week basically being told what they're academically good at and what they academically struggle with. And also, you wouldn't want to limit it to academic topics anyway. I mean, my path to responsibility was uh, being given leadership responsibilities in the Boys Brigade when, uh, when I was 13 and then growing up having responsibility for younger people and responsibility in the marching band. And, yeah, 10 years after taking charge of the marching band, I qualifies as a primary school teacher, which really was not on the cards when I was 13. I had no leadership qualities and only very rudimentary social skills. But that kind of uh, responsibility, which notice how it wasn't an academic responsibility in any way, shape or form. It was a social responsibility. Find something non-academic that your autistic young ones can take responsibility for and watch them surprise you. Either something that allows them to play to their strengths or something, like in my case, that uncovers something that they don't yet realise that they're good at or haven't yet had the opportunities to become good at. So yeah, um, responsibility built people, whether it's, uh, like in my case, responsibility over young people or could be part 
responsibility over part of the family business or responsibility over the family pets or the class mm-hmm. pets or if, if you're in school being a milk monitor in primary school because that's a really big thing in primary you know right. <laughs> yeah the, uh, the principle is the same and just what one thing that's just popped into my head uh, while I was saying that was and this is a, a school thing rather than a parenting thing but feel free to like, adapt the, the lesson in whatever way best suits you or, or just pass mm-hmm. it on to your child's school uh, I remember when I was in year four I taught my class the alphabet in sign language. I just told the teacher that I'd, I'd been taught by my sister what the alphabet in sign language was. And so she said, oh, would you like to teach the class? So I did. Stood up in front of the class and taught them the alphabet in sign language. I can probably remember about half of it now, but that's not really the point. I remember that I had that opportunity. Now, th- this is me talking, you ended up with a mathematics degree. I, I had no problems in mainstream education, other than the fact that I, w- I was given the standard program of bullying that they put in place for autistic students, obviously, but um, I was very much the, uh, the person who was autistic in mainstream education and totally got away with it. But let's pretend that the exact same story happens to someone who really struggles academically, has already been taught to believe that I'm the child who is supposed to struggle, I'm the child who isn't meant to be really good at school or making friends or things like that. Imagine the same thing happening to them and they're given an opportunity to teach sign language to the class or some kind of equivalent. Yeah. By the time that child is my age, they may have completely forgotten sign language, but they're likely to always remember that time when they got to teach the class sign language. Mm -hmm. That can do wonders for a person's self-perception. So yeah, that's another element of responsibility building people. Brilliant, yeah. So, I mean, it doesn't have to be sign language. It could be anything that they could teach the class, really, couldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so finally, we like to finish our podcast on a positive note. So can you give us your best bit of advice on how children with autism can achieve their goals? Well, that's quite a broad question. Uh, (laughs) How can autistic children achieve their goals? I think goes back to what I said earlier about finding a place in the world where they can play to their strengths. Yeah. And whether it's at home or whether it's at school or whether it's in their social life, autistic people have strengths, autistic people have weaknesses. But the thing is, humans in general have strengths and humans in general have weaknesses. So it's, it's almost like being autistic is just another way of having the human experience. But... Often there's, uh, I know you want to finish on a positive note, but it does need saying that, uh, unfortunately, there is something about autism that makes other people underestimate us. But if you, I should say, your child finds themselves in a place where they are not just doing what they're good at, but being seen to be doing what they're good at, and that in turn influences their opinion of themselves oh, yeah, I'm the kind of person who, well, yeah, I struggle with that, but I'm also really good at this. Someone who defines themselves by their strengths rather than by uh, their weaknesses, then, well, you've got the positive self-perception in place, and that increases the chances of everything else succeeding. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, so that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Um, so I'd like to say a massive thank you to Chris for his time today and for all our listeners for joining us. So... Bye for now, and thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed listening today, you might want to check out our other resources we have on the Blitherslack group website. 
They have a wide range of support materials covering ADHD, autism, mental health and education, health and care plans. For more information, please visit with us at group.co.uk forward slash resources. I'll see you on another episode of Sensational in the future. Bye for now.